All right. So this is episode 109 of Imperfect Action. And today's guest is Michael F. Schein. He is the president of Microfame Media. And he talks about his new book, The Hype Handbook. We're really getting into the idea that that mega fame, you know, superstars, that day has really come and gone. And for most of us, what we want to focus on is being micro famous, being known within a niche for what we do. And he also talks about how you can create that excitement in your business or your project, you know, whether it's a podcast or a website or a blog or whatever it is, without over-promoting, right? Without lying, cheating, stealing. And he discusses the myth, because there is this myth out there that hard work is all you need to do to stand out. And he talks about his process and the steps that you can do to ensure that your hard work does get noticed. So this is a little bit of a, a widespread episode. We, we touch on a lot of things. I think we even cover a little bit of 80s and 90s punk rock for a bit. Uh, but anyway, great conversation with Michael. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Give it a listen. And of course, you know, like it, share it with people who you think would in, enjoy it and benefit from it and leave reviews wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let's get started. Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards. And of course, this is the show where we're looking for ideas, information, inspiration on really how to get out of our own way. And today's guest I'm very excited to talk to is Michael F. Shine. And Michael, a tradition on this show, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself. You know, who are you and what are you up to? Sure. So I do a, a number of things. I own a company called Microfame Media, but you know, at the core, I, I still identify myself as a writer. I uh, never wanted anything to do with business. Uh, I had wanted to be a writer since I was about five or six years old. Uh, shortly after I could pick up a pen and learn to read, I wanted to write novels. After that, I wanted to write songs. Um, and it's, it's funny because I left a corporate job that I had just fallen into and I had seen an opportunity in a type of marketing writing, you know, content writing or copywriting. And I thought because I was a good writer, I would be able to really do well with that and everyone would clamor for my stuff. And what happened was I almost lost the year's worth of savings that I, that I had kind of tied up. So I had to really learn how to quote unquote market myself. And I say quote unquote, because I didn't even know it was called marketing at the time, but basically get people to notice me and get emotionally engaged enough to, to, to buy my services. And after really trying a million things, I hit upon a system that, that worked. And then eventually people started to want the marketing more than the uh, writing. And uh, I ended up with a business, but now I've come full circle and I have a book coming out with McGraw Hill, which I'm very excited about. So, Well, well excellent. So is the book happen to be about marketing? Yeah, yes and no. I, it, it's sort of about non-marketing marketing. And what I mean by that is, so when I um, went on my own, you know, as I said, I thought that it was really important for me to read every sales and marketing book that there was. So I did that. And I learned all about, you know, sales funnels and, and the latest, you know, at the time, I think Google Plus was the hot thing that was going to change the world, you know, and SEO. And while all of that was great, 
I quickly realized that those were all just tools. It was trying to become an architect by learning about hammers and nails and you know screwdrivers. And as a result, I, I didn't it, I didn't get a lot out of it. I mean, I, I tried to implement those things, and they didn't you know they didn't do anything for me. So what happened was I had been sort of as I mentioned an artsy kind of kid, and I was really into. Um, you know, things like like punk rock and things like I, I used to read about cults and just I was really fascinated by these people who got really huge emotional um, reactions out of large numbers of people and then drove them in a certain direction. So I remember I was really at my wit's end with what to do. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I think I'm like really bad at sales and marketing, but back when I was in bands, I mean, I'm a pretty terrible singer, but we sold out clubs and things. And, you know, I would do things like I would, I would put up, you know, posters that said Dave Matthews must die. He was popular at the time just to get people worked up. I would dress like a nun and make sure the press was there, you know, and all kinds of things. So I said, why am I trying to learn this capital M marketing stuff? Why don't I look at those people who were marketers who didn't call themselves marketers? So I looked at rock managers and hip hop managers, and then I looked at cult leaders and propaganda artists. And my idea was, I, I want to see, are these techniques and strategies inherently immoral? Because if they are, I want nothing to do with them. That wasn't why I left you know, my job. Or is it that while some mischievous and immoral figures learn how to use these things, it's just the reality of human psychology and that it can be applied in all kinds of ways. So I found out it was very, very much the latter. And I based my whole idea on that. And that's what, you know, whatever success I've had came from, from that. And so that's what the book is. It's, it's um, certainly classified as a marketing book, but it's really about, I mean, you know, the emperor Augustus commissioned the Aeneid to justify his reign. And we're still reading that today, but it was a piece of propaganda. So was that marketing? Yeah, I guess. But it's more that kind of marketing than um, sales funnels. All right. So I, I know the name of your book is The Hype Handbook, and you subtitled it 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. And so, you know, when I, when I first read that, I... I kind of have a negative reaction to the word hype. And, but, you know, as I kind of read through the whole subtitle and everything and get down to it, it struck me that um, this may be in the similar vein to Ryan Holiday's Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is a book that, that I like very, very much yeah. and is not a book that sounds like what it sounds like. And, you know, it's one of those things that uh, the information there could be used for good, could be used for evil. So I love your take on it that, no, how, how do we learn the good from this? So take us there. So, I mean, we, we, it's probably easier to see the negative, like when you look at cult leaders and all the downsides that come with that, or, or how we generally think of propagandists. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think of happy stories there. So what's the happy side? How do we convert that to me helping, well, helping me get more attention or helping the reader get more attention It's a great question. And there's so much here. So first of all, um, I love that Ryan Holiday book as well. I think it's his best book. He, you know, he, he's now known as kind of this stern proponent of stoicism. And he has, but he started out with that book about how he was this kind of trickster who generated a lot of attention. And that was, you know, I think that was an influence on, on what I do. Um, so it's funny, the word hype is 
undoubtedly in most people's minds a negative word. What it what it typically means is when you don't really have anything, hyping it up and making it seem better than it was. But you know, I, I've decided to take it back and repurpose it. But th there's a reason for that. There's one community where the word hype is absolutely a positive, and it's in hip hop. So in rap groups, I don't know if you remember this, especially in the 80s, there was always a member of the rap group, like Public Enemy had Flava Flav, and they were called the Hype Man. And they were not the marketing arm doing the necessary evil of getting the word out, right? They were part of the group. They did get the word out. They got the crowd excited. They hyped up the band, but they would rap. They were part of the group. And what I realized is, a lot of times the people who um, say, you know, hype and, and doing things in sort of a roundabout way is, is a negative thing and it doesn't give me happy feelings. They're people who have more options, who are sitting squarely in the center of the conversation, you know? However, if you're marginalized, if you don't have many options, which a lot of people in the hip hop world originally don't, many of them are African-American and had to look at the world as it is rather than how they wish it were, right? And so it, they needed to embrace hype. It's the reason that Robert Greene's 48, Law, or, you know, 48 Laws of Power is very, very popular in the African-American community. It's, it's, it's extremely well received. So, what does that mean? I think what it means is that what I did was I looked at a lot of these negative people, but I also looked at people like Richard Branson, Thomas Edison, Martin Luther King. And what I found was while the content that they delivered with their hype, with their marketing tactics was very different, their tactics, their underlying strategies and tactics were remarkably similar. So what it comes down to is there are just simply inaccurate ways that the human brain, especially in groups, perceives reality. And we can either accept that or we can deny that, right? So I would much rather, the bad people already are good at this. They don't need a book, you know? It's the rest of us who need a book, you know, who need to understand these strategies because it's just it's just what works. But un, but fortunately, it doesn't depend on lying, cheating and stealing. Not at all. So can you give us some example there of like what what are some of the principles that we can use for good to, you know, to to get our name out there, to to draw attention? In fact, you know, as you're talking realize that it may not even be those that, that are marginalized. Obviously, that's a group that can benefit from it. But, you know, there's so much noise on the internet right now to, you know, be posting on Twitter, just, it's just a wash. <laughs> you know, you're just 100%. crushed yeah. in the stream. So, you know, how does someone who, who's not Richard Branson get attention? Well, remember, Richard Branson wasn't always Richard Branson. You know, Richard Branson was a hippie in London who was trying to compete with Atlantic Records and, and Columbia Records, right? And he did that using some of these strategies. But um, yeah, I would say that the broad answer to your question is all of them can be used for good or evil. But I'm going to give you a few specific examples that, that really show the stark distinction between how they can be used, you know, um, 
for for good or evil. So one um you know concept that I talk about is about I call it give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. So, so what that basically means is that if you're introducing a bold new idea, something that's really unusual, it, the human brain has a threshold. So if you, a lot of new religions do this, because if you say to somebody, listen, um, I really, you know, uh, there is, you know, let, let me think of an example. Um, there are ancient aliens living on the edge of volcanoes who give you negative thoughts and control your behavior. That, that is the fundamental principle when you get to the higher levels of Scientology. And if you told that to anybody, they would say, what are you talking about? You're nuts. Now, I'm not saying that it is nuts. That's for other people to decide. I'm saying that any religion sounds really unusual if you introduce it all at once. However, what really sophisticated religious evangelists do, they come in with very, very small steps first because our brain has a threshold where big change is really scary and small change isn't. So um, there was uh, the guy who founded the Nation of Islam was this gentleman named Wallace Fard. And he would go into poor neighborhoods in the 30s and he would dress really good and he would sell silk scarves. And he would, people would invite them into our homes. He would do this and he was very slender and good looking. And, and it, it, he, someone would offer him food and pork was very popular at that time. And he would say, you know, I don't, I don't eat pork, you know, I don't, and, and I don't drink alcohol. And so people would try his diet and they would lose weight because eating pork and drinking alcohol is fattening. And then he would come back the next time and they would say, wow, it's a miracle. It's amazing. Well, you know, it actually comes from my religion, you know? So how can that be applied completely benignly? Well, let's look at Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King had a lot of reason to speak in very, very harsh terms. I mean, that was a time where, you know, African-Americans drank in, in separate drinking fountains, right? Anyone had the chance to be, you know, upset. But if you look at his speeches about integration, they're all wrapped in the flag. He talks about from sea to shining sea, glory, glory, hallelujah, the Declaration of Independence. So he basically gives the babies their milk before he gives them their meat. And we see that mistake today when people start talking about defund the police and all of this. Yeah, whether or not you agree with that, that's fine. But that scares people. You know what I mean? That's a very big change. So yeah, it's, it's really just the way our brains process new information. What might people be surprised to learn from the book? I, you know, um, I think some of the stories are really interesting. Some, some of the things we think happened organically in history that are really engineered. Um, so th there's a, there's a, there was a gentleman named Edward Bernays who um, was, is known as the father of public relations. He actually invented the term public relations. And he is almost single-handedly responsible for women smoking. Like it was considered very uncouth for women to smoke before him. He's responsible for, he had a government in Guatemala overthrown for the United Fruit Company. And he got Americans to eat breakfast. I mean, to eat bacon for breakfast. So, so essentially, uh, 
you think of bacon and eggs as the quintessential American breakfast, but um, it wasn't, you know, in, in before the 20s, Americans did not typically eat that. And his client was beech nut, which was at the time a big pork producer. So he wanted to get Americans to eat more bacon. I'm talking a lot about pork today for some reason, but, <laughs> but um, so what he did was, and, and this is a, a strategy of making something look grassroots, but actually working the levers below the surface. He had spent a lot of time building a network of powerful people. So he called up a, a very, very influential doctor that he knew who was connected with like 5,000 doctors across America and basically got the guy to write a letter to the 5,000 doctors that said that um, there's scientific proof that bacon is the perfect breakfast food, the healthiest breakfast food, because it replaces the energy that you use during, that you lose during sleep. So without knowing why, you know, Americans started eating bacon because their doctors were just recommending it across the country. And as a result, Beech Nut made a lot of money. So it's just amazing how we think that the cream will rise to the top. And it's just so rarely the case. There really are, um, hype artists making things happen. So, and that kind of runs counter to the myth of, you know, you, you put in the hard work, you get noticed, it's a meritocracy, you go to the front of the line. But, you know, as you point out that the world doesn't always work that way. So why do we continue to believe in the meritocracy? There's probably a lot of reasons. Um, you know, listen, when, when when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, so forgive me. But I actually have a chapter in the book that talks about why hype artists should fetishize work. So here's another thing. What cults typically do is they get their, their, their uh, members to work really, really hard on their behalf. There have been cults where uh, people would dig ditch. You would find movie stars. This this um, this one this guy Gurdjieff. He was really popular with movie stars in in the I don't know 30s or 40s, and and they would just be digging holes to nowhere on his property. Or um, you know the 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 Moonies often got their members to work 67 hours, and it's always framed as this is what you need to do to get salvation. This is what you need to do to get to your goal. The real reason is that if you work really, really, really hard on behalf of a cause or a person, and then you start to get data that maybe the cause isn't as great as you thought, cognitive dissonance happens. So you, it's very hard to look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm working for nothing. So you double down. So you'll see this today. You see Gary Vaynerchuk constantly telling his young followers, hustle, 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 hustle. Why does he feel the need to tell people to do that all the time? How does that help him? He, I don't know, but his followers worship the ground he walks on. So we all know that hard work's important, you know, but hard work for hard work's sake, just thinking that if you do the work, that's all you need. It's just a myth, as you said, but I think that there are some vested interests in, 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 in our believing that. And I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I, I'm, I'm really not. You know what I mean? I, I I don't believe that most conspiracies are true, but there are people who understand the levers of getting human beings in groups to do what they want them to do. All right. So, well, let's get uh, just uh, real practical, break it down a little bit more. So 
someone who has, you know, a blog or a business and wants to get noticed or, or, you know, wants to move some of these levers, where did, where do they even start? I think the most important thing you can do is to come up with a contrarian point of view. So a lot of times, and, and you know, so so your podcast, you could have just called this interviews with business leaders, right? Sure. There are a lot of podcasts like that, but your podcast is quite successful. And you've come in with a contrarian point of view. You're almost gently picking a fight with what most people say is the case. You're saying imperfect action is better than action. And that stands in contrast, and you do it in your very kind way, but it stands in contrast with the, the hustle culture or with the culture of make sure you're the top of the game. You're, 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 you're sort of giving, you're positioning yourself as the leader of a tribe of people who can now say, you know what, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and there's still a chance for me. So I think that we're tribal beings. We like to define ourselves against, but that doesn't mean being a troll. That doesn't mean picking fights with people just to pick fights with people. It means taking a bold stand in opposition with the norm. So if you're thinking of a blog or a podcast or some sort of channel or whatever, instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to get out there and share my ideas, why don't you think about what is a point of view in your little corner of the world, your industry, your niche, your whatever, that sort of puts you off, that makes you angry, that you just think is wrong, but everyone seems to agree with it. And then position yourself in opposition to that. What's the other point of view? And you can, that's a really, really good starting place. Okay. So, so we start off with, with that kind of counter positioning. Um, I'm, I'm going to switch gears here just a little bit because sure. you said that your company, what was called uh, Microfame Media, right? Yeah. Well, so I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of micro fame. Yeah. Um, there's, a, I guess, on this podcast very early on, who, whose wife referred to him as HR famous. You know, he's in the field of human yeah, resources. Exactly. <laughs> very well known amongst, you know, 37 people. Um, right. I, I get him a little bit. No, <laughs> he's I, more I, famous I, than yeah. that. But, you know, right. it is a, a corner of the world. So uh, tell me a bit about micro fame. What, what does that mean for you? Yeah, it's it's um so all of these things we were talking about before hype, those are the strategies and tactics I use to make my clients micro famous and and originally used to make myself micro famous. However, the thing that really changed my life and my career was when I realized that as you said earlier, if you try to get famous on the internet and just kind of shotgun stuff, that's like throwing a cork into the Pacific Ocean and hoping it gets lands on a shore somewhere. You know, it's possible, but it's tough. Right. But at the same time, there were all of these small worlds in the internet era. And it's much simpler if you can really figure out what that small world is, that intersecting world like HR, but it can be something even more amorphous than that you can sort of blitz that once you have your contrarian point of view, you can sort of blitz that niche and get micro famous. So for example, we talked about a couple of names, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, there's Seth Godin, there's all these people. To me, they're like superstars. They're like Elvis in my world. And it's kind of the like, I don't know what you would call it, the 
the marketing internet guru kind of world, you know, my mom doesn't know who those people are. People in the sports world don't know. I mean, maybe they do, but I don't, I don't think a lot of them know who they are. People in the music world certainly don't know who they are, you know, but we know who they are. So I think that that presents a real opportunity. If you can find what are those podcasts and blogs where there's like 20 figures that all write about each other and have each other on as guests, right? You brought up um, Ryan Holiday. It's funny. You'll look, there's like Ryan Holiday, James Altucher, Tim Ferriss, Tucker Max, and like Lewis Howes are like this club. They're on each other's podcasts. They pitch each other's books. They're on each other's newsletters. And the rest of us just sit and, and gape, you know? And that's a, that's a micro-fame niche, you know, and they've done very, very well as a result. So yeah, I think that's a, I, when I cracked that puzzle, it, it sort of allowed everything that came after it. And, and so, um, so I'm kind of curious, I, I think I have it clear in my head, but, but do want to ask you, so you say when, when you crack that puzzle, I mean, are you mean like the, the kind of formula, all the steps behind it, or just the like micro fame is a small niche in and of itself. You know, the people who want to be micro famous, that's different than those who want to be, you know, mega famous. Right. I just mean that I realized it was even a desirable thing. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I had left my, my job and I, you know, I was used to, so I had two frames of reference. I had become a famous rock star or novelist, which means you're famous, famous, or else you may as well not do it, and work in the BPO industry, which was just this job. It was an industry. It was just like the business process outsourcing, right? Which had nothing to do with fame of any sort. And so when I went out on my own, I, I sort of was, was, I didn't know what to do. People were saying, market yourself on the internet. So I would just sort of blog about anything that had to do with copywriting and no one was paying attention, you know, and I would just sort of tweet about it or put it out into the world. Or I didn't really have an organizing theory for how do you get people to notice you? And then I realized that it, what originally it was for me was, was this sort of, um, a certain type of enterprise software because I had worked in this, what's called the business process outsourcing world. They, we ran customer service centers. It was just an industry I fell into. And when I realized that there were a group of people who were writing blogs in that space, talking in that space, thinking in that space, and I could hone in on just that circle and have an outsized impact there and ignore the rest, that just changed everything for me because that was so much easier to do. It was so to bite that piece of the apple was so much easier. And ironically, then I started to expand outward from there. But most of us, and I'm not arguing that point. Um, okay. I, I know yeah. I've gotten caught in my own, that trap myself where it's like, you hear that advice, you know, like find your niche, start small and then expand out. I don't know if it's a human nature thing or just the way some people are wired, you know, you just want to go big, you know, it's like it, it takes an yeah. immense amount of discipline to narrow it to one, one area. And maybe that's more observation than question. So I guess I'm maybe for myself, Michael, I'm wondering, you know, uh, how do you create that discipline or how do you know where to pare down to? Maybe that's a better question. No, it's a, it's a great point. And I also think it's about what your goals are. My goal at the time, you know, I, I had just come out of a job 
that I disliked. I was desperate to figure out a way to make money doing some version of what I loved, which was writing, you know, marketing writing was what I saw. And the discipline came from the fact that after a lot of trial and error, I realized that that was more doable. Hmm. However, if you have different goals, then, you know, there, there's value to be had in being famous. I mean, if you're, if your goal is to be famous because it, it feels good to be famous and that's valuable. There was a time where I wanted that. I don't, and I'm not, this is not a backhanded thing. Like if your goal is just to be famous, no, really like there's value in being famous. There, there are ways to do that. You can hype yourself up to being famous. You know, it's a lot harder, but it's doable. However, I don't know. Let, let me think this through a little bit. So, so hold on. So I think by talking sometimes, so bear with me. So I have a 10 year old daughter, right? And when I was 10 years old, I loved movies like we all did Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, back to the future. I and everybody I knew of my age knew who Harrison Ford and Michael J. Fox were. And we all knew who Tom Hanks was. We knew who Sigourney Weaver was. We knew who Shelley Long was even because of Cheers, right? right. Why I was watching Cheers at 10 years old, I, I don't know, but that's a different question. <laughs> but, but my daughter doesn't know a lot of movie stars. However, her favorite celebrity to the extent that she wants to go to England to meet this person is somebody named LD Shadow Lady, who is a Minecraft YouTuber who has millions of followers and she's famous in the Minecraft community. And I don't know that wide scale fame exists as much as it used to. I don't even think it's that there are famous people, sure. But who are most of the famous people now? Like really, really, really famous people. There are people who were famous 20 years ago. Hmm, interesting. Like who's the most famous new star? Like superstar level new star. Yeah. Um, well, that, I'm a little out of touch. So <laughs> Me, but Exactly. But you couldn't be out of touch. You couldn't be out of touch 30 years ago. Everyone knew who right. Harrison Ford was. Grandmas did. That's really interesting. You know, I, I hadn't thought that the the superstars are the same people who were superstars, you know, decades ago. Uh, but, you know, the first person that comes to my mind is George Clooney. And, you know, he's been around since, what, the early 90s. Since I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, all right. That, that's pretty wild. And, and I, I get what you're saying, you know, about uh, the Minecraft thing. Um, my son used to be very much into Dan TDM, who, you know, what was, was say, Minecraft. Say, that's the same world. That's the same yeah. world, which he's the biggest. But I assure you that there are people who do not know who he is that would have known who Harrison Ford is. I know who he is. Right. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but that, that is a small corner of the world there. Right. But um, it's a big, small corner of the right. world. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're still famous. They're just not Harrison Ford famous. Absolutely. That's really intriguing. Uh, you know, sorry, I kind of... <laughs> No, Dude, derails my question asking when I start thinking like that. That's okay. That's these are these are the best kind of conversations. Yeah. So, do you think it will swing back, or do you think it will continue to fragment more? Like, will we all just start consolidating again behind a few key figures, or will we just keep drifting further and further apart? 
I don't know how it ever goes back to what it was. I, I don't know how that happens. I mean, you never know. Sometimes things blow up. I mean, Harry Potter Frozen is a good example. That was famous, famous. That wasn't micro famous, right? Right. But I think by and large, like the infrastructure is different. I'm not the first person to say this by a long shot, but you used to have three television channels and three movie studios or six movie studios, right? I mean, right. the channels were, were not, I mean, I remember, like I mentioned earlier, I like punk music. And I remember I used to like this band called, very uh, nice name, The Dead Kennedys. One and of my faves. Really? Okay, yep. cool. That's that's awesome. Well, we have a lot to talk about. Well, anyway, I love <laughs> them as well. And um, I used to listen to their records all the time. And then one day I went on a school trip to Boston. I lived in Florida. And we went to Newberry Comics and I found a Dead Kennedys VHS. And I had never seen these people play live. And I remember I couldn't believe, like I was holding it in my hand. I'm like, I'm going to see the Dead Kennedys in concert. Like, oh my gosh. It was that hard to find niche stuff back then, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's a niche that was a underground kind of, and now what do you do? You just go on YouTube. I mean, it's right there. You can find right. anything you want. So I think the infrastructure is just very, very different. Speaking of micro-famous, that, that's a great example of micro-famous there. Um, that was what micro-famous took back then, but you needed to like, you needed to work hard. I mean, these people were sleeping <laughs> on couches, Xerox and zines. I mean, it was not for the light faint of heart back then. Right. Yeah. Well, what haven't I asked you yet, Michael, that uh, I probably should be asking you about being micro-famous or about your book? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I thought your questions have been great. I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> um, all right. So I guess to kind of start wrapping up here. So, well, actually, let me ask. So, I mean, you have microfame media. So when you start working with someone, what, what's kind of the, can you just walk me through the steps? Sure. I mean, at a very high level, that that the first thing we do is exactly what I advise people to do on their own. We always start and we spend as much time as we need to uh, to figure out what is that that contrarian point of view. That's key. Then what we do is we figure out how to make that run through everything. And then from a tactical point of view, well, first what we do is we find out what is that micro niche. So I mean, one, one way of doing that, um, if you spend the time, if you go through a, a, a kind of the niche that you, that you hypothesize is where your client or, or that yourself can live, and you sort of make a list of all the blogs, all the podcasts, all the content things, you know, YouTube channels, whatever. And you get a really big spreadsheet and you put them all across the top and all across the, down the side. You'll find that of all of those names, there's like 40 that get, that get mentioned all the time. And the rest have like one or two check marks next to them, right? So we do an exercise kind of like that. And then after that, we do experiments, you know, instead of just blitzing and throwing it all out there, we try to figure out, okay, is digital PR the way to go? Should we create our own YouTube channel or podcast and invite people on? Should we um, do some more mischievous type marketing and subreddit rooms? And we do little tests. And when we find that there's a result over and over again, that's getting closer to whatever goal the client had, then we really just blow it out but only in that niche. We do try to stay disciplined in that way. All right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, that feels like a, a good place to wrap up right then. I mean, we, we 
talk big, we talk practical, talk a little bit of punk rock. We're, I mean, yeah. I, I think we're good. One day I got to hear what other, uh, what other crazy bands you listen to. Yeah. <laughs> we used to call it the punk rock bond. I remember walking down the ocean city boardwalk in New Jersey and if you saw it like in the 90s and if you saw someone wearing a black flag shirt, you just sort of nod at them. And <laughs> there's like something there, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. T-shirts were the, the only way you knew then. I was the only way you knew. <laughs> now people wear T-shirts. I, I remember I met some kid wearing a Ramon shirt, some younger kid. And I was like, oh, the Ramon shirt. Like, I don't know who they are. You know, they just, just like a T-shirt. <laughs> Urban Outfitters or whatever. <laughs> Uh, that that appalls my daughter to know. Is that a band? But, yeah. <laughs> no, when, when she has to explain to people that no, she actually went to the show. Does, <laughs> it, it, it does your daughter team. like that kind of stuff? I mean, is she a big music person? Uh, she she loves music, and, yeah. and so uh, we we kind of meet in the middle, and so she she'll go see the stuff I'm interested in. I'll go see the stuff she's interested in. Uh, that's really nice. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I, my final question. Well, I. Two final questions here for sure. you, Michael. One is where can people find you? Sure. I mean, um, you know, I, I have an author site, uh, Michael, michaelfshine.com. Our company is microfamemedia.com. But, you know, if you're into these ideas, small plug. Um, my head's totally in the book right now. I put a lot into it. It's fun. So check that out. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, or your local bookstore if, if those are open. Um, and there's something else fun that we that I do that we do. Um, I, I read a lot of books that are kind of off the beaten track, biographies of some of these figures, weird old crowd psychology books. And they're so different than the typical kind of marketing book recommendations that I have this thing called the Hype Book Club, and I send out these recommendations. I stole it a little from Ryan Holiday, although he just sends out anything he's reading. These are very specific to this kind of group psychology stuff that we've been talking about. So that is um, hypereads.com slash list, if you want to check that out. Um, and that those are the best places to find me. And, you know, listen, if you ever want to just drop me an email, even anyone out there just to talk about stuff, I love talking about these ideas. So, you know, even if it's completely non-commercial in nature, I always love good conversations. <laughs> All right. Excellent. And last question for you then, Michael, is just uh, what would your ask be of the listeners? If they could do anything for you, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, again, um, check out the book. You know, I, I, I am a writer first. It's I, I've wanted to have a book out since I can remember. And I'm really proud of the thing. So check it out. All right. Excellent. And uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Michael, Thank you so much for being on today. This has been a lot of fun. This was a true pleasure. Thank you.